welcome to the Resilient Sessions, a podcast that brings together injured veterans from Blesma, the Limbless Veterans Charity, and a well-known public figure to share stories of overcoming challenges of all kinds. The podcast provides an opportunity for our guests to chat with one another about their stories, sharing how they overcome their ups and downs so we can learn from them both. We hope you enjoy it. Hello and welcome to the Resilient Sessions. I'm Alice Driver and I'm joined by my co-presenter, veteran and Blesma member, Stuart Harris. Today we welcome two very special guests. Sabrina Cohen-Hatton is a British firefighter, psychologist and writer. Having grown up in Newport, South Wales and experienced homelessness as a teenager, Sabrina has gone on to become one of incredibly few women in the fire service, rising through the ranks to chief fire officer, training as a psychologist and leading research into reducing human error that has reshaped fire service policy. Sabrina is now an ambassador for the big issue, which she says changed her life. Josh Bodgy is a veteran cyclist and making generation R speaker. Having joined the Royal Engineers at the age of 17 and earned his parachute jump wings in 2004, Josh's military career came to an end during his third tour of Afghanistan, when on New Year's Eve, Josh stood on an IED, resulting in the loss of both of his legs and his right arm. Since his recovery, Josh hasn't stopped. He's won two silver and two gold medals in the Invictus Games, and he's taken on one of the world's toughest endurance cycling events, the epic 3,081-mile race across America. Josh is now a Making Generation R speaker and lives with his wife and child. Okay, so Sabrina, did you always want to go into the fire service? (laughs) Really good question. Um, (sighs) Probably not, to be honest with you. It didn't occur to me until after um, I'd had uh, my experience of homelessness. And the reason that the fire service really appealed to me is when I was having those experiences, it was really difficult. And... I felt like every day I'd kind of go to sleep and I think, well, that's the worst day I've ever experienced. It can't possibly get any worse. And then I'd wake up the next day and something had happened. I think, no, that really is a new low. And when the prospect of um, secure housing became a reality for me, I started to think about what else could become a reality. And I thought it'd be really great to be able to do something that would help other people. And the reason that the fire service appealed to me is because you're in a really privileged position. You're trusted by people to know what to do when they're quite frankly having the worst experience they've ever had. They don't call you unless it's an emergency and by its very nature, it's extreme. And so I kind of felt like I could relate to these people who were also having the worst day of their lives. And I thought that I'd be able to rescue other people in a way that no one had been able to rescue me. And that's when I started to think about it. Growing up, the fire service wasn't necessarily something that I thought about. Um, I was really geeky. I was into science and things like that. So um, doing something like fire wasn't something that I'd originally thought of. Um, Probably not helped by the stereotype because it wasn't necessarily something that immediately came to mind. But Mm -hmm. do you know what? I've been in the fire service now for nearly 20 years and I have loved every single minute of it. I wouldn't change it for the world. So how did you experience, end up experiencing homelessness? Um, when I was growing up, my dad died when I was um, about nine years old and he died of a brain tumour. And my mum found it incredibly difficult to cope with that. And she really struggled with her mental health. 
And I think it's fair to say that if anyone goes to war with their demons, it's everyone around them that gets hit by the shrapnel. And that was absolutely the case in our family. And it was a really difficult, really volatile environment. Um, Her business went under and we ended up living in abject poverty for several years. We had um, a social worker who, to be honest, I was probably 30 by the time I realised just how amazing this guy was. At the time, when you're growing up in that kind of environment with a caregiver who loves you very dearly, but is incapable of giving you the care that they know that they need to or would like to, then you're in an environment where you're told to mistrust everyone. I had no trust of authority. Um, and I thought that going into care would be something like, uh, I don't know, a Dickensian workhouse or something. So, you know, I wanted to avoid that at all costs. But by the time I was 15, it wasn't long before I was 16, actually. It got too much in that environment. And so I started sleeping rough to escape it. Um, and that was really, really hard, particularly as a as a 15 year old girl. And I wanted to hide the fact that things were as bad as they were because I didn't want to go into care. So I carried on going into school. I'd sleep rough in the night and then I'd go into school the next day and try to pretend that everything was OK. Wow. Um, but I had some. What really did school say? Experiences. Didn't they didn't, didn't they didn't know the extent of it. Not initially. Okay. Anyway, Um Although they weren't particularly helpful at the time. At one point, one of the teachers saw me selling the big issue and crossed the road to avoid me rather than coming and having a conversation, which was awful. It was awful because it made you think then that nobody cares. And even though Mm. there might have been someone that might have cared, the message that you get from people and the message that you internalise and then the way that you speak to yourself is... Mm. Nobody cares. There's an example to confirm that. Um, So it was really difficult. And you imagine that kind of environment for a young girl. It's awful. It was really dangerous. And there were times when I felt completely dehumanised by people around me. One example I could give you was um, I can remember being so hungry that I started to fish hot dogs out of a bin by a, like a hot dog van. There was this bin next to it and it was a boiling hot day and I could see all these people eating hot dogs. I was just thinking, I wish I could have something to eat. And I could see people throwing them away and they were half eaten. There was nothing wrong with it. And so I kind of got to the point where I was like, oh, I'm going to have to. So I delved in and I started eating a hot dog out of the bin and people were looking at me with disgust. because I get it. It's it's kind of disgusting. But rather than going, wow, that kid's really hungry. Maybe maybe I should get them a hot dog. Then they were looking at me like something they wouldn't have scraped off the bottom of their shoes. And I felt so dehumanised by that. It was just awful. And, you know, as much as you want to tell yourself you don't care about what people think, you're tougher than that. The reality is we're human beings and we are conditioned to care because the way that someone looks at you, you experience their judgment, you experience their reaction to you. And it makes you then think about how you would expect someone to respond to you in the future. So it becomes part of how you internalise yourself, how you speak to yourself, your internal narrative. So it's really difficult in that kind of environment where people are dehumanising you almost daily to see yourself as having any value. So it was a really difficult period for me. Mm. And so how did you get yourself from that position into the fire service and, and actually thinking, I want to help others in mm. when they have their worst day of their life? 
because that takes some strength. It was gradual. It definitely wasn't an overnight thing. Um, I started selling The Big Issue. Um, I don't know how much people know about The Big Issue, but it's a street magazine where people who are experiencing homelessness or poverty can buy a magazine for a certain amount of money and then sell it on for a little bit more. In my day, you'd buy it for 50p and you'd sell it on for a pound. It's a little bit more now, thanks to inflation, yeah. but uh, <laughs> but in the good old days, that, that's what it was. So I started selling it in um, Newport, which was where I was um, rough sleeping at the time. And do you know, there were maybe 12 other people in Newport also selling it. So it was really difficult to kind of earn anything more than would allow you to live hand to mouth. So then I found a place called Monmouth, which is a little town where no one else was selling it. And I'd get on a bus at like seven o'clock in the morning. I'd go all the way up to Monmouth. I'd stay there until seven o'clock at night until I'd sold them all. And that's when I started to be able to earn enough to think about getting somewhere to live. But now the thing about accommodation is it wasn't as simple as just having a roof over your head. I had several failed attempts at uh, accommodation before I was able to really get to a position where I could support myself. The the first place I got was a a room in a shared house where um, it was a really dodgy house. And one of the one of the blokes that was living there um, attacked me and he absolutely beat the living daylight out of me so much so that he didn't stop until the police came and pulled him off me. And I, I they took me to the hospital and I was literally like a Ribena berry for the next couple of weeks. It was awful. So, again, sleeping out for me felt safer than sleeping mm. in an environment like that. So I was back out again. Um I lived in a van for a while. I got a van because at least I could lock the door and it was secure, felt secure, more secure than my other experiences anyway. Mm. So it wasn't until, you know, kind of several attempts later that I was able to actually get somewhere where I it was secure accommodation, where I wasn't yeah. at risk of eviction, where I wasn't at risk of being in an environment that was unsafe. Um, and I moved somewhere um, to a little town further away from where I was, where I didn't know anyone. It was a town called Risca. And the beauty of this was I knew that nobody knew me. So no one would look at me with pity or judge me in the way that I was expecting them to. And it enabled me to have a fresh start. And that's when I looked at joining the fire service. And I first joined as a retained firefighter, which is like a kind of part-time firefighter in that station in Risca. And then uh, eventually then got a whole-time position. Um, And I've never looked back since. Wow, amazing. Um, I mean, just to pick up one of your points, I always think it's interesting how it's it's called homelessness and not houselessness. Yeah, yeah. And absolutely. I think what you've just said there, you know, it, it's trying to find somewhere that's safe and secure. It's not just a roof over your head. Yeah. But one other thing that I feel really strongly about when we talk about homelessness is not calling somebody homeless because homelessness is not your identity. It's an experience. So I was very careful with language around that because it's so easy to internalise this. It really, really is. Um, so it's it's a really challenging, multifaceted problem. And I don't think that you can look at any one piece in isolation, but taking it away from someone's identity and saying, look, mm. it's happened. It happens. It's OK. There is a future. is something that's really important. And for me, that's why I started to talk about it, because I hid the fact that this happened for years and years and years. I didn't talk about it. I didn't offer it to people. Nobody knew this part of my life. And I was worried about telling people because there was still a deep seated part of me that felt ashamed of it. And I know that it's wrong to feel ashamed. I've got nothing to feel ashamed of. But again, it's that internalized emotion mm-hmm. and how you feel about something. But the turning point for me was 
that there are so many people, so many young people who are in the same position today as I was back then. Those things aren't, aren't, you know, unique to me. Things like poverty, things like mental health in your family. There are loads of young people going through that. And it was important for me to say to them that, look, your circumstances don't have to define you. They don't determine where you end up, only where you start from. And if we all start sharing the things that have happened to us that are tough, rather than just the things that have gone well or the successful bits, then it might make the journey less challenging for people who are coming up behind us, who are facing those challenges and thinking, well, it's obviously not for me because things like that don't happen to people like me. So, you know, I think it's important that we share. Absolutely. Well, yeah, bravo to you. It's amazing. So, Josh, we heard a little bit, like, you know, Sabrina joined the fire service there and stuff like that. Did did you always want to join the military? Um, Yeah, good question, Stu. I mean, I I grew up watching Soldier Soldier as a kid. Um, We all did, didn't we, back then? Uh, But no, I um, I sort of left school, not really knowing what what I was going to do myself. I did all right at school. Um, and I went and did what every other, every other 16-year-old boy does when he leaves school. I went to college and I did hairdressing. Um, now, some of you may laugh, but <laughs> it was great. There was me and 19 yeah. females in a class. So it, was, it was brilliant. Uh, yeah. No, it really wasn't brilliant. I sort of fell into doing it because I uh, I was a Saturday boy at a barber's and just earning a few quid to go out and have a few beers on a Saturday night. But I was sort of not forced into joining the army, but I was forced into making a choice in my sort of young adult life where... My family were moving from Berkshire to Lowestoft. Now, on a map, it's only like 180 miles, but to me, they might as well have been going to Australia. I was not going. When I read up about Lowestoft in a book back then, because the internet wasn't that widespread, it was like, that's where people go to die. That's what I thought in my head when I was sort of um, at that stage of my life. And I had to make a choice. So I sort of, I followed in my dad's footsteps then and I joined the uh, joined the army at 17 years old. Yeah. And um, so, so where did you do your training? What regiment did you pick? Not everyone can be an amazing guardsman, a Welsh guardsman like myself. <laughs> mate. So tell oh. us a little bit about the path you chose. Oh God, here we go. The army jokes have started. <laughs> but um, no, I um, I went I went to the recruitment centre in Reading, and I um, um and I, I walked in and went, I want to join a parachute regiment. And my dad said, Don't do that. You'll just get blown up. Cheers, Dad. Nice one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so no, he convinced me to follow in his footsteps and join the Royal Engineers. Um, did my basic training in Litchfield, combat engineer training in Camberley, uh, Midley. Yeah. And then I, I went off straight from there and did P Company, uh, past P Company and got my parachute wings. Brilliant. Nice one. So is that nine squadron, is it? Yeah, yeah nine parachute is. squadron, Royal Engineers, yeah. Yeah, a yeah, good bunch of boys. I was near them for a while back in the all the shot days. Um, so that's your training. What, 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 what was tour life? Did you, did you do Iraq? Was it straight to Afghan when you got there? What, what, you know what? Um, I, I never got to go to Iraq, unfortunately. Okay. Um, I um, I just missed it. I was on career courses every time we the squadron seemed to yeah. deploy to Iraq. Um, yeah. But I, I deployed to Afghanistan three times in four years. Um, yeah. First tour was Op Heric 4 in 2006. Yeah, then Op 8 in 2008. And then final tour was Heric 13 in 2010. Yeah. So do you mind telling us a little bit about what happened on that third tour, please, mate? Yeah, of course. Um, well, it's... Sort of 10 days after my little boy was born, I deployed. Um, oh, I'd wow. been held back. To, they let me stay in the UK. They let me. I asked to stay in the UK and the army are quite good at these sort of things. Uh, they let. I, I deployed late after he was born. Um, and yeah, I spent... What was that like, leaving yeah. him and um, leaving a wife? Well, I don't know. It was just... It, it was amazing he was born. But then again, all my mates were in the desert. So I, I felt 
I felt I needed to be in Afghanistan because that's where yeah. all the boys were and I didn't want to let anyone down by being stuck in the UK. That's how yeah. I felt at the time. Um, and to be honest, I had nine days of crying and I was like, I'm ready to go <laughs> yeah. to Afghanistan. What am I doing here? Um, I'm, I'm not trained for this. Um, but no, you know, it was hard, but it was it was what I had to do. Yeah, I deployed um, and got straight out with my, because I was part of a Royal Engineer search team by this point. Um right. The threat in Afghanistan had gone from conventional war fighting to count, uh, sort of guerrilla tactics, putting stuff in the ground. They knew they couldn't beat you in a fight. They they would they gone to guerrilla tactics, putting stuff in the ground, and then trying to so ambush like you. IEDs. IEDs. So, yes, exactly. Sorry, yeah. I was going to say that, but you've jumped in. Cheers, Alice. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know more than me, Alice. Um, yeah, so they've gone. They've gone from well, considering when I was in Afghanistan in two thousand eight, there were two Royal Engineer search teams. By the time I'd gone back in 2010, there were 20 search teams. It shows you where the threat had changed from conventional warfighting to counter-ADs. counter, uh, counter ADs. Yeah. Um, yeah, I got my team straight away, deployed to a place called Karnaka in Helmand province. I was working with the Irish Guards. That's a proper Guards regiment. There you go, Stu. Um, um, but yeah, no, literally I was there for two and a half weeks and New Year's Eve 2010, we were on a, a dawn patrol. We were going to go and take a compound over about a mile away from where we were where we were based, our forward operating base. And the idea was to search the compound, leave a load of guardsmen in there to fight the Taliban so the local town could just get on with daily living. Um, and yeah, unfortunately, New Year's Eve 2010, about, well, about t- we, we were all stacked up at the back gate. We're going out first light. Uh, There's about 20 guardsmen and a team of engineers. Um, and, you yeah, know, night vision goggles are going on, cocking your weapons, doing all your checks before you head out the gate. And we all headed out in single file following the guy in front of you. Um, the guy at the front got a metal detector. He's searching in front of him and the guy behind him is walking behind, spraying white lines on the floor. So you've got a safe lane that you know has been, it's been proven. Um, and I'd say about, 20 minutes into the patrol, about 100 metres in front of me, there was just a massive bang, followed by the big dust cloud coming out of the ground. You knew what had happened straight away. The guy at the front of the patrol had missed an ID, stood on it, lost both his legs. Um, and we knew what needed to happen straight away. We kicked into action, cleared a helicopter landing site, because at this point in Afghanistan, they had the thing called the, uh, the golden hour. If they could get you from point of injury to the hospital within an hour. I think you had, I think it was 94% chance of survival. I think not, I'm not entirely sure on the figures, but um, yeah, it was, it was, you had more chance of surviving a, a, an IED blast in Afghanistan than you did a, a car crash in the UK. Uh, I mean, yeah. that the, the medical yeah. advancements out there were amazing. Um, yep. Yeah, got him on the helicopter. The guys did. And then that took off. And that day, my job was to mouse hole through walls. When I say mouse hole, it means put an explosive charge on a wall, um, and then blow it so the wall would go down instead of going through doorways because doorways are what we would call vulnerable points. It's yeah. where it's most likely to they're most likely to put an IED. Um, I've blown all my explosives that day and I've turned around. I've stood at a breach where I've put blown a wall down. And I remember it now turning around, uh, looking at the floor and thinking all the white lines have gone where, where we searched. So I called one of the boys back over and went, just search in front of me. As he's doing that, I took a step to my right. And the next thing I know, I'm in a ditch struggling to breathe. Ears are ringing, dust in my eyes, not really knowing what had happened. Um, yeah, it turns out I'd stood an ID. I'd been blown off a road into a ditch. Um, I didn't think it was me that had been injured. Um, I had no clue. I, was, I, I just couldn't breathe. I couldn't see. I couldn't hear. And it wasn't until my two best mates, well, two good, two of the section, jumped in the ditch and started putting tourniquets on my legs that so I realised 
wow, it's me that's been injured. Um, I mean, a tourniquet, Stu, you'll know well better than anyone, uh, is the last line of defence in a catastrophic hemorrhage. Um, they need to, if you lose a limb, they've got to get one on straight away um, to stop you bleeding out. And I, I knew them by by them putting them on my legs. I knew I was in a I was in a bad way. Um, I wasn't really concerned about my legs though. I, I remember my friend Stu was working on my left leg. I went, Stu, Stu, don't worry about my leg. Is everything still between my legs? And he put his hand straight down my trousers and went, yes, mate, you're small as ever. And I was like, brilliant. I'm all right. I'm happy. You know, you've got your mates looking after you. There's medics running over to look after you. You you know, you're in good hands. Um, Yeah. Like I said, first 20 minutes, I didn't feel any pain whatsoever. I was laughing and joking. The adrenaline and the shock, the shock and adrenaline is massive. Um, Yeah. It wasn't until the medic kept asking me how I was feeling. I think I told her to bugger off and... Sorry, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to swear. I've just dropped one there. There we go. Um, that was an acceptable one. Yeah, okay. But no, like I said, um, I was in a... Uh, if it wasn't for the boys on the ground and my, my mates, I wouldn't be here now. They got the tourniquets on pro- quickly. And yeah, I think I was back in the hospital within 47 minutes of being blown up. So... Um, oh, wow. Incredible. Yeah. So that was how the third tour went, mate. Yeah. Right. Treat yourself. Oh, thanks for sharing that with us, Josh. Pleasure. And so, um, Sabrina, uh, I'm just going to sort of pick up on your story again. Um, you'll now have become a full-time member of the fire service. Mm-hmm. And what was it like working for them? Or what, what is it like? Oh, it's amazing. I absolutely love it. Um, I, uh, I'm really proud to say I'm now chief fire officer. So, you know, my, uh, my world has completely changed from where it was back then. Um, and I've had some of the best experiences of my life in the fire service. It's a real privilege to be one of the ones that are trusted to do what we do. Um, and and that for me has been incredible. Um, there have been some really tough times, don't get me wrong. Um, there has, I have experienced some sexism, especially in the really early days. Um, I, I've had my kit messed around with. I haven't always been welcomed with, with open arms. In fact, when I first joined, then that people used to say to me, yeah, I just don't agree with women in the job, Sam. Sorry, no offence to you. You know, I just don't agree with women in the job. It's not a place for girls. And after a while, like, initially, you don't know where to put yourself because you're kind of like, oh, well, you know, sorry I exist kind of thing. And then after yeah. a while, I thought, no, I'm not having this. And I kind of turn around and say, yeah, yeah, I, I get where you're coming from. It's fair. I feel the same way about morons in the job. I don't agree with them. No offence yeah. to you. But here you are, you know, just there's no place for it. It's wrong. <laughs> And, you know, some of them had daughters that were the same age as me and they'd be coming out with this kind of stuff. And you think, how would you like it if someone spoke to your little girl like that? Because I don't mm. think that you would. But, you know, I've had my kit messed around with. I've had, uh, I've been sexually harassed more times than I care to remember. And I had people tell me that things have to be different for me because I'm not a bloke. But what I will also say is that's a really small proportion of the experience that I've had. I've also worked with people who are still like big brothers to me to this very day. I've worked with people who have made me believe in myself so much that it's pushed me to do things that I didn't think that I was capable of. And, you know, it, it's just been an incredible career. So what I won't hide away from the fact that those things happened, then, mm. you know, th- but more good things have happened than that. But what I will say is going back to those times, I didn't challenge it at the time because okay. I was young and I was insecure and I felt like the balance of power was against me. So I didn't feel like I could speak up. And one of the things that I've taken from that today, especially in a leadership role, is that everyone can relate to a time when they felt like they couldn't speak up or challenge because they felt like the power was against them. 
And I, I want people not to underestimate the impact that they can have on someone's experience, someone's day, someone's existence in a role, because no one has to wait for a big policy change or some big initiative to happen. If we all just took that opportunity to speak up and challenge when we know that something's not right, actually, we could all make a huge difference and we could all do that tomorrow and the world would change. So for me, it's about taking some of the experiences that you've had, which might not have been your most positive experiences, and looking at what you can do to build on those to make someone else's experience better. Wow. It sounds like that's kind of your mentality for life. You know, just whatever challenging situation you are, you always see the good in it. And that's sort of... You've got to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, ultimately, bad things will happen to good people. You can't get away from that. You can't change what happens to you. You can't control it. You can't even control how you feel about it. But one thing that you do have control of is what you do about it, how you respond to that. And I'm not saying that it means that you shouldn't feel emotional about something or that you can't really regret that something's happened. But there is that point at which you say, okay, well, what am I going to do next? Because this is the point that I have a choice. And what can I do to stop other people having that bad experience that I've just had? And I think that that's really important. Yeah, definitely. And what percentage of the um, uh, fire service is actually female? (laughs) Um, So when I first joined, we were on 1%. I was woman number seven in my fire brigade out of 1,700 men. So very, very few. We're now on 7%, which is seven times more than 20 years ago. So that's good. But, and there is a but here, it's still very small. So I do find it difficult to jump for joy when we're talking about such a marginal increase. Now, there are reasons why this is important to me. And I, and I promise you now, I don't believe in having an, an arbitrary quota. I don't think that we should look to have a certain percentage of women in the workforce by any stretch of the imagination. But what's important to me is that we have the best of the best to be firefighters. Because being a firefighter is hard for all of the reasons that we've talked about. So it's important that we have the best of the best. The problem is the stereotype of a firefighter is so strong and it's so mm. pervasive that many people who would be the best firefighters haven't even thought about it because that roughly tufty stereotype, that's not appealing to them. So really, I'm only getting the best of the best of a really small demographic that, that, that kind of look for it and that apply to it. And that's the bit that we have to change because mm. being a good firefighter means that you're calm under pressure. It means you're decisive. It means you're good at problem solving. You're good at communicating. You're good at working in a team. Absolutely none of those qualities are determined by your gender at all. So it's really important to me that I think when we're looking at the next generation of firefighters, we look to ways to get more people to think about it and think about what they could contribute. Because it's a huge public service that you're able to do. It's really, really exciting. So to to be able to kind of attract a broader range of people, I think would be really beneficial. And look, I'll be really honest, I'm not the first person that they give a sledgehammer to to knock down a door but I'm sure as hell the first person that they send through that hole in the door because I fit so it's important that we've got different people with different strengths to be part of that team and so I wouldn't want people to be put off because they can only think about the stereotype it's much broader than that definitely great yeah thank you so Josh you were just telling us a bit about you were blown up in Afghanistan the fabulous Irish guards looked after you you Probably from, I don't know what sort of choppy again, but you're back in Bastion now and then you're coming back to the UK. Can you talk us a little bit about your, through your recovery, please? So my recovery, um, 
I was back in the UK within 24 hours of being of being blown up, um, and I got flown straight into Birmingham, taken to the new Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Birmingham. Um, and yeah, my my initial experiences were a week in a coma in intensive care. Um, now, intensive care in Birmingham hospitals a circle uh, with the nurses station in the middle, and to me, it was the Millennium Falcon. I didn't have a clue what was going on. Honestly, I didn't know where I was, what was going on. I've gone from being in the desert to being in the Millennium Falcon and there's Jedis fighting everywhere. And honestly, I didn't have a clue what was going on. It was all down to the meds that they were pumping into you and the painkillers. And like I said, I was all over the place. My first, the first time I woke up was to a priest stood over me, uh, the army padre who's in the hospital. And he had, he had the the priest, the, the collar on. And I thought, wow, I'm in heaven. Uh, the next time was to a nurse doing a functions test to make sure everything sort of still works down there, which would have been great. But he was 40 years old, bald, and pulling a rubber glove on. It was like, what is going on? I'm all over the place. And yeah, I spent a week arguing with my dad and my ex-partner at the time. They kept telling me my legs had gone. I go, they're not gone. I can still feel them. They're there. My hand's still there. Honestly, I didn't have a clue what was going on. I spent six weeks in total in hospital um, and they the week in intensive care and then they move you to the normal ward and the first night on the normal ward um, I had a dream that my sergeant major had come to the end of my bed told me to follow him so I somehow managed to sit up with all the tubes in crawl to the end of the bed fall out head first knock myself out put myself back in surgery um, oh, God. yeah I was, I was in a deep dark place mate I didn't didn't have a clue what was going on didn't know what, what I was going to do for the rest of my life what my career was going to be I knew I'd never be able to play football again, but hey, I was never good at it anyway in the first place. But no, my real sort of, my, the, the moment that I sort of had to accept that my legs were gone and my arm was gone, and there was nothing I could do about it was when a guy walked past my room a couple of weeks into hospital wearing prosthetic legs. Um, and I literally, I nearly fell out of bed pressing the, the orange button to get him to come back and talk to me. And he walked in my room, showed me his legs and I went, that's what I need to do. Um, right, my legs are gone. My arm's gone. What do I want to do? Do I want to sit here and feel sorry for myself? Or do I want to accept they're gone, get myself to Headley Court and start walking and leading a normal life again? And that's what I did, mate. There was no looking back from there. The minute, like I say, I accepted that there's no, I didn't do anything wrong, but my legs and my arm are gone. I've, this choice has been made for me, but I've got to get over it and move on. And it was hard. Isn't there a, isn't there a phrase you use that accept you've landed? Uh, oh, what did I say? Yeah, so well, in the um, when you jump out of an aeroplane, military sort of static line parachuting, you can't really control the landing. You've just got to accept your landing and hope for the best, really. Um, so yeah, yeah. Well, I, I wouldn't say that for for how I felt at the time. It was more like, um, right, this has happened. Life goes on. Do I sit here and feel sorry for myself, or do I try and put my life back bit by bit? Um, and like I said, I went to Headley Court, which is Defence Medical Rehab Centre in Epsom. Just moved to Stanford Hall now. And you get there and there's literally just robots walking around everywhere. Literally guys with legs missing, half their heads missing, arms missing. And it it sounds weird, but it's amazing because you feel normal there. And you can see guys that have been injured further down the line from you and you aspire to get to where they are in their recovery journey. So for me, it was get there and, right, get that wheelchair in the cupboard. Let's get walking, um, which is what I did. Did it too quickly, though. Didn't listen to my doctors. Didn't listen to the physios. Didn't listen to anyone. I just thought I'd be invincible and, yeah, ended up putting myself back in hospital. And 
infections in my legs and stuff in yeah so the recovery journey for me was like a high and then a low and it was like i need to level off a little bit um so i went back listened to doctors listened to physios um and yeah spent two years just putting my life back together sorting my house out being a dad enjoying life really you're happy to be alive you're a young lad i was 24 when i got blown up and wow what what an experience yeah yeah where was it did you discover um you know hand biking and biking in Headley Court or did that come a lot um, afterwards? So hand cycling I got into, um, so hand cycling is basically you pedal a bike with your arms instead of your legs and you lie on the road, you're literally you're like a dart on the road using, using your arms to pedal and um, I got into that because one day I looked in the mirror at home two and a bit years after being injured and went you fat and I won't repeat what I said to myself but I'd gone from this 24-year-old fit lad in the desert, loved, loving my job, to this lad that's just happy to be, in a, be alive. And you've overindulged. You've been going to gigs, eating good food, drinking too much. Just You're just happy to be alive. Um, and you go on the Headley Court diet, which consists of Domino's because the food there was awful. Um, so the amount of times the Domino's man was coming to Headley, Headley Court every night, it was, uh, <laughs> it was getting beyond the joke. But... No, I looked in the mirror one day and went, you need you need something in your life. You've you've stagnated. You're just happy to be alive. You're just sort of existing. Um, and this is where I, I got into hand cycling. I, I, I spoke to my old ERI, my rehab instructor at Headley Court, um, and he said, well, why don't you sign up for one of these charity bike rides from Paris to London? I thought, I'm in. I'll do that. I'll raise some money. How hard can it be, Paris to London? It's flat northern France, isn't it? It's not. <laughs> <laughs> It was, uh, yeah, 450 miles of, uh, well, it was meant wow. to be 350 and it ended up being 420 because funny enough, Stu, there was a guardsman reading the map. Um, <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, yeah. apparently I was the first per- first triple amputee to ever ride from Paris to London. Um, oh, man. And I literally, I got to, I remember getting to Horse Guards Parade in London and thinking, I'm never riding this bike ever again. <laughs> the furthest I'd done in a training ride was like 20 miles. And the first day of that bike ride was 90. It was like, what have I got wow. myself into? It was horrendous. But I mean, there was a great sense of achievement of doing it. But I got to London and I did the did what Steve Redgrave did in the Olympics. If anyone sees me near that bike again, they, they have my permission to shoot me. Ugh. Got home, threw it in the garage and thought, I'm never riding that again. And yeah, two weeks later, I was back in London watching two other uh, guys who've been injured racing around London on hand bikes in a proper event. And there were th- thousands of people watching them um and the minute i saw that i went i need to get myself back into this and got home got the bike out of the garage and started training properly yeah oh good and i remember at the time as well uh, i I remember i'm sure it was the first invictus games i think i saw you on the telly box a few times (laughs) cheers um um, um did you i'm sure you did you smash out some silvers or golds i'm sure uh so the first invictus games i i actually didn't want to get involved with it because oh, I just thought it would be a, uh, it'd be like a, a big sports day for injured soldiers where the public would get to come <laughs> and hug you and feel sorry yeah, for you. And yeah. that's not me. I'm not into that. I just, I just, I wasn't interested. It was actually my, my, my now wife um, was saying to me, look, if you don't do it, you'll regret it. Just, just go and see how it is. Um, and yeah, she, I, I eventually did it. I, I trained for it. When I say I trained, I trained. I didn't really train. I sort of got, I just went there hoping to achieve something and prove something to myself. And yeah, I went into the cycling and I, I won a bronze medal. Um, and But winning that bronze medal in a time trial, I got lapped by a French guy uh, in the road race and he beat me by a 
a country mile in the time trial. Um, and that sort of spurred me on to start training properly. Um, and then I went back to Invictus in 2016 after two years of properly training. I, 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 I sort of decided that I needed to put everything in my life on hold and focus on just riding this bike. I'd fully committed to riding it. Um, lost loads of weight, got in great shape. I literally took myself to Mallorca for six months of the year and just put everything else on hold. My family, job opportunities, um, Gucci trips away with military charities and just focused on riding this bike. Uh, and I went into Orlando in 2016. Um, 2016 it was, wasn't it? Mm. Um, saw the start line, saw the French guy who'd lapped me, was on it, went into the time trial, absolutely buried myself. He beat me by a minute the year, uh, two years before. He beat me by one second this time. Oh, uh, and then I thought, right, I'm going to do him in the road race. Went into the road race. I absolutely buried myself again. We're neck and neck into the final corner. And he beat me by half a bike length. But again, he'd lapped me the year, two yeah. years previous. So it just, I felt, yes, I'd won two silvers, but you yeah. just felt, right, I've closed the gap now. Next time I race him, I'm going to beat him. And it's honestly, I love just chasing people and like at the end of the day I'm racing guys with two arms and I've got an arm and a half so yeah I just and you also went on to you also got two gold medals as well in the rowing <laughs> so you're um but I've got a, a question you know you said there about that perception of how you didn't want people to sort of pity you and be like oh look they're all just look at all these disabled sort of veterans doing sport aren't they great did you clearly you went back again what what changed? You know, did you feel that people were feeling sorry for you? Um, I I don't know. I, I well, that's the wrong answer. I think ever since London 2012 and the Paralympics, the whole perception of disabled athletes or injured athletes or anything like that, the whole public opinion has changed because of it and the the way they view it. There were more. Was it London? It was the first Paralympics they'd ever sold out every ticket. Um, yeah, it's amazing. And then two years later, it was the Invictus Games. I think also having His Royal Highness Prince Harry involved at the time um, helped. But I remember the first event was the athletics and it was at the Lee Valley Stadium. And I think there were 7,000 people there to watch it. And I was just there to watch my friends compete. Um, and just speaking to a few of the people that were watching, it was clear they weren't there just to feel sorry for you. They were there because they were genuinely interested in right, this guy's been blown up or this girl's been blown up, but they're now running around the track and they were just yeah. amazed by it. Um, mm. And it went like that. The week just got bigger and bigger and bigger to finish in with the Foo Fighters playing, which was amazing. Stood mm. at the front of the stage. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I just, the whole week was just amazing. Yeah. Sabrina, I can see you nodding there. This whole idea of kind of I- identity and perception are you sort of in agreement there with Josh or can you sort Absolutely. of relate? Absolutely. I was quite excited by the fact that he got to see the Foo Fighters too. Uh, yeah, I, I was at <laughs> twice, the back. Twice in a week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right because sometimes things can happen and it, it can be so meaningful to you that it can become consuming and it's really easy for that to become part of how you see yourself, isn't it? It becomes part of your identity. And actually, we find this a lot in the fire service and on, on many frontline services, and particularly in respect to mental health. So the okay. thing about being a firefighter is it does become a huge part of your identity and about how you see yourself. And we know that frontline responders are disproportionately more likely than the general population to suffer with their mental health, which is 
probably not a surprise given your repeated exposure to trauma. But interestingly, we're also less likely than the general population to ask for help. And when you think about that, when you see yourself as a protector, then the idea that you might need some help or you might need protecting can be counterintuitive to how you see yourself. So it can become more difficult to ask for help. And I think the other thing specific to the emergency services is that when we see the effects of mental health, we're called at crisis point when someone is at the kind of the, the, the kind of very end of the spectrum in terms of how they're feeling with their mental health, because you're going to deal with the after effects of a chemical suicide or somebody who's um, who's who's in a position where they're about to to jump off a tall building. That's the point that we get called. So mm-hmm. your idea about mental health isn't about the full range of the spectrum. It's about just the very end. So actually what that means is if you try to unpick that, it means that you might need to ask for help in a different way or you might need to make sure that there is a provision for help in a different way that's going to be more accessible. So I think that that point that Josh raises about how you then see yourself and about how you relate to something, about how it becomes part of your identity is a really important factor when you talk about anyone that's dealing mm. with a significant trauma or the after effects of a significant trauma, whether it's because it's part of your job and you're exposed to other people's trauma on a daily basis or whether because you've experienced a significant trauma. So I think it's a really important point. Mm. Sorry, just on that asking for help, Sabrina, I, and Stu, you'll agree with me here, being trained as a soldier or a firefighter or a police officer mm. asking for help is the one thing you were never taught to do yeah. you were oh, always yeah. taught to look after yourself and your weapon and your kit and just get on with your job and look after your teammates mm. and when i do and go into schools mm. and do the make a general generation r talks people say to me what is a coping strategy for me for the first few years i was so stubborn i'd never just go can i have some help please You'd always try and do it all yourself, like trying to learn how to walk or I'd be upstairs and the wheelchair would be downstairs or my legs would and my wife would be downstairs. And instead of me just going, Anna, can I have a glass of water? I'd end up bumming down the stairs, put my legs on, go and get a glass of water, bring it back to the stairs, take my legs off, bum back up the stairs, put it on the side. I know that's not probably the best example of it, but you're so stubborn and you're so afraid to ask for help that when you actually do ask for help, your life becomes a lot easier. And yeah. people, and she, people are there to help you and want to help you. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right on that. And it can be really difficult. It can be quite intimidating to ask for help sometimes as well. I, I had um, a, an incident where I thought that Mike, my other half, um, now my husband, we I was called to deal with an injury where a firefighter had been severely burned and he was on that truck. So there was a one in four chance it was him. Um, it turned out not to be him. It was our, our friend that was burned, but he was very nearly killed. So after that incident, I found it really difficult because I felt like by not wanting it to be him so much, I felt like I'd wished it on our friend and I couldn't reconcile that. So as much as I felt relieved, I then felt this kind of overwhelming sense of guilt because it's like, how could I think that? How could I feel like that? And I found it really difficult to talk about it. I didn't speak to anyone because I was afraid that they would think that I was weak or that I couldn't cope. And I was even a little bit worried that the cynics would think that my weakness was predisposed because I was a woman. So I didn't say anything. And I suffered more because of that than I needed to because I didn't know how to ask for help. Um, So I can relate to that. It's a really kind of difficult point. It's about how you can step back from 
what you're worried about as opposed to what the reality of the situation is. Mm. And I think sometimes having people around you who can see that objectively can be really helpful in kind of bringing you out of that. Mm. And be prepared to be, I suppose, vulnerable or that perception of being vulnerable um, as well. And being Um, okay with being vulnerable as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it is okay. And it is, you know, um, it takes huge strength and courage to be vulnerable as well. Oh, yeah, definitely. Sorry, just back on Sabrina's point about vulnerability. I remember the first time I ever went out in public in sort of prosthetic legs. And you wear the shorts because trying to get trousers over these things is a nightmare. But you are conscious that everyone is staring at you. Literally, yeah. you, I remember walking around the Tesco's and being followed by people with cameras and you just go, wow. Oh, no. But at the time, you mm. you feel vulnerable. You're like, I'm, I don't feel safe here. I don't feel, how do I get away from this? I can only walk as fast as these legs will take me. But now, seven, eight years down the line, I don't even flinch if someone stares at me or, or I don't mm. know, follows you or et cetera. Um, obviously I'm, I'm back in a wheelchair at the moment just because of a, a crash last year I feel but I am feeling vulnerable again being in a wheelchair because I've mm. I've gone from being able to walk around a prosthetic legs to being stuck in a wheelchair and it did take me a while to get used to well accepting that I'm going to be in this chair for a while people are going to stare at you mm. how do I get in and out of the car and again it is it's all about training yourself and mentally being aware that it's okay to be different. Like Sabrina said earlier, you're not going to fit in that box where people tick. It's um, it, it, it's all down to you individually to accept the situation you're in and overcome the issue you're facing. Uh, yeah. Whether it's prosthetic legs, being a woman in the fire brigade, which is amazing, mm. by the way, um, or I don't know, crashing your car, whatever. It's whatever life throws at you. It's up to you then to accept what's happened and overcome it. Yeah. yeah. And Sabrina, so this incident happened with your then fiancé, Mike, and Mm. you've mentioned there that you were feeling incredibly guilty uh, and just clearly maybe, you know, had a range of emotions that you weren't talking about. But how did you end up sort of, well, I suppose it's your classic style, what we're seeing here, that you channel it into something positive and go on to Mm. do this amazing research and, and do a PhD? Yeah, I had I had to do something because I was I could feel myself spiraling, and it gets to a point where you just think I have to do something or this is never going to change. And and I think looking back, I was completely torn between the role of a responder and all of the kind of accountability and the responsibility that goes with that, and the role of a loved one and all of the fears and the anxieties that are really normal to go with that. But it surprises you because. In the fire service, you see people every single day who wake up to cornflakes and normality only to find their entire world is somehow turned upside down and will never be the same again. But because you see it in other people every day, you don't expect it to be you. So I think that that triggered some really strong emotions. Um, But like I said, I got to that point where it was just a spiral. I thought I have to do something. And so I started to look at what I could do to make things better and naively I kind of thought well maybe if we could get a better burns pack we'd be better prepared um because you know we what what we had probably wasn't sufficient for an incident like that so I started to kind of look online and then I started to look at what causes most injuries and what I found was absolutely astounded me and the majority of injuries that happen across all industries not just fire happens as a result of human error 
So that's not a problem with a piece of equipment. That's not a, a flawed policy or a poor procedure, but a human mistake. Someone makes the wrong choice in the wrong, at the wrong time. But the reality is, in my world, that was that meant that people were getting hurt. So I thought, well, if human error is the big problem, then surely we need to try and understand that better so that we can stop it. Maybe we can design it out. But I, like I said, you know, I left home at 15. I left school at 16. So I, I didn't have any qualifications to make any kind of a meaningful difference in this world. So I started coming from a place of just wanting to be able to understand it. And then maybe I could do something small and meaningful and make a kind of marginal gain on it. So I thought, okay, well, you know, there's no point in kind of looking at this giant mountain and being put off. So I started again at the bottom and I did a psychology degree with the Open University um, part-time. And I went all the way up to PhD, again, part-time at Cardiff University that time, um, while I was still serving full-time. So again, that wasn't easy because, you know, you don't get time off work to go and do research. So and to find ways around it. A newborn baby as yeah. well. She was I mean, born the I think day my PhD was due to start. But then is... I had maternity leave, so I could oh I could do God. stuff. Oh yeah, okay. you only have a little baby, that's okay. <laughs> I, I'd read research papers to her. <laughs> like I was reading a nursery rhyme. And the prefrontal <laughs> cortex is useful. And like, she wouldn't have a clue what I was saying. I could have been I could have been reading Winnie the Pooh for all she knew, but then I was getting in reading I was doing my lit review whilst I was I was having a baby so it was fine but I'd, I'd go into the lab at like 5 30 in the morning I'd run my experiments and I'd go and I'd pull a full shift in the fire service I'd go home I'd put her to bed and then I'd go back in the lab and do the night shift so I'd be there till kind of like 12 one o'clock in the morning sometimes because like inevitably my equipment would break and there's no there are no technicians there so I think I my PhD should have majored in electronics actually mm. rather than psychology so I would often have a late night of my own doing because I would break stuff um but we I managed to do um a seven-year part-time PhD in three years which was like the same time as full-time but I think I did it quickly because I really enjoyed it and because I wanted to do something to apply it at the end but that really just raised more questions than answers as is inevitable with something like that um but then I started working with um, my professor and a small research group at Cardiff University that I know I now co-supervise with him, looking at how we were making decisions in action when we were actually out there on the fire ground, not designing it in a lab and, and looking at what should happen. But we were looking at what was really happening out there. And we've been doing that for, for oh over a decade now, actually. Wow. Um, and what we found was really, really game changing because we thought in the fire service, all of our policies were set around kind of making a very um, uh, a very analytical decision where you're in these kind of circumstances where you'll see a problem and you'll come up with a number of different options and you'll choose the best one. The reality that we know from the research is that, again, 80% of the time, the decisions that you make are intuitive. They're based on your gut decisions, your previous experience. And actually, those decisions happen in a very different part of the brain to the analytical ones. So actually, with the policies that we have, we were setting up an unfair expectation on firefighters to make an analytical decision when actually their brains were responding in a different way. So actually, you can see how human error can creep in when you're putting one set of expectations, but the reality is very different. So from that, we developed a, a, a set of techniques to help firefighters to make better decisions um, in those very kind of uh, dynamically changing, difficult circumstances. Um, 
we ran some national decision trials. We had like 84 firefighters from up and down the country trying out these new methods, uh, comparing them to the old methods. And we found they, they, they were a roaring success. So Didn't that's you now do like a four day test or something in Waterloo with like 2000? Oh, that was afterwards. Casualty. Yeah. Oh, was that afterwards? That, that okay, was afterwards. That was, that was another uh, piece of research that we ah, did. But the, the techniques are now used all across the UK. Um, they're now in our doctrine for uh, how we deal with major incidents with all emergency services. It's called our Joint Emergency Services Interoperability Principles. So all emergency services can benefit from them, which is really great. And they're just as applicable in everyday life. So the more that we can do to share those, the more people can benefit from my perspective, the better. So, I mean, it goes back to my point earlier on. Sometimes really bad things will happen and you can't choose what happens to you. You can't choose how you feel about it, but you can choose what you do about it. It might take you a while to make that choice um, and it might come with a lot of internal battling, but you can do it. You can do it. Uh, And something good can come out of it. Don't let that pain be in vain. Wow. Amazing. Thank you. Um, Josh, um, I want to ask you about, um, I know you've gone on, you mentioned that you've done amazing things. You won all those awards at the Invictus Games. You did the ride across America, which is over 3,000 miles ride. And I think you even became the world's first triple amputee paddy rescue diver. Yes, yeah, yeah. I, uh, quite impressive. Yeah, that was uh, that was interesting. <laughs> this time four years ago, I was on my honeymoon in the Maldives. Um, I'll never be able to go, afford to go there again. It's amazing now if you get the chance. Uh, and after two days of sunbathing, I thought I'm bored. <laughs> and I went to the dive store and spoke to the, the dive center and spoke to the, the German dive guide. He looked me up and down and went, this could be interesting uh, <laughs> and took me diving the next day. Um, but the minute I got down and got buoyant and you just realised how quiet and peaceful it is under there, nothing in your body hurts. It's just so calm and it's just amazing. Um, I just fell in love with it straight away. Did Ended up doing my paddy open water in the Maldives uh, and then I sort of got involved with uh, a few other guys for a military charity. Um, and we went away diving. I did my advanced open water. And then I was told, would you like to go and do your rescue course? No one, no triple amputees in the world has ever done it, but would you like to try it? And I thought, well, why not? Let's let's have a go. And they, they basically set out the standards for an able-bodied person to do the do the course. And I had to hit those standards and better when I did, I did the initial training. Um, and yeah, you find some things hard, but there's always, as the saying, adapt and overcome. Right, if he's doing it that way, how am I going to do it? I've got to get a, an unresponsive diver from the seabed to the surface then get him on a boat and I've got one arm. How am I going to do that? And you, you work through what tools you have at your disposal. So for me, it was using my stumps to clamp around someone's cylinder and try and then raise, inflate their jacket to get them up. Um, and yeah, you just work out, you, you see the problem, how do I get through it? Right, that's how I do it. Um, and yeah, I ended up passing it for my, for my assessment though, when I, to make sure I got proper sign off and no one could judge it. I had four master instructors watching me do this lift and the whole assessment. Usually you'd have one. I had four watching me to make sure I did it properly. And then even after that, people said to me, you've, you've never done that. They've obviously just ticked the box to say you've done that. And they filmed it all, showed everyone footage and. Honestly, you'd think people would go, well done. Some guy went, oh, yeah, but you didn't have a snorkel on. Well, I'm 15 metres under the water. What's a snorkel going to do anyway, if you know what I mean? It's in my pocket. But someone's always got something to say because they don't believe you're going to do it. 
Um, but also diving. I, I, I watched Jaws when I was younger, and no kid should watch Jaws when they're young. If I couldn't touch the seabed, I was not getting in the water. Um, and I've always had a fear of sharks, and I had to overcome that fear. So last year in July, I booked myself on a shark diving week in Egypt, living on a boat. Wow. Uh, and on day two, I'm down at 30 metres with my dive buddy, who's an ex-Royal Marine and got a leg missing. And there's hammerhead sharks circling you. And it's a, this is amazing, but terrifying at the same time. You're not sure what's going on. The, the adrenaline's going mad. But it it was just, I, I, don't, I don't, again, I can't explain how I felt. It was just... Terrifying, but brilliant at the same time. Um, but yeah, I did that. And then I, I did the full week and I'm still terrified of sharks, but it just goes to show you they're not really interested in you if you leave them alone. Um, but yeah, well, I'll have to go and do it again to overcome that. But <sighs> the second crash you go on about, um, I, like I said, I've done the race across America. I, I, I class myself as a pretty above average cyclist. I'm not brilliant. I'm above average. Let's put it that yeah, way. You're, you're <laughs> definitely above, above um, average. But no, I was just in Mallorca with my wife and some friends and we were just doing a lap of the island. And like I said, I spent years in Mallorca training. I know the island like the back of my hand. And I spent all day going, well, four hours going from Palenza to the, the top of Pigmeor, which is sort of 800 meters above sea level. Spent all day going up this mountain. I thought I've got a 10 mile descent now and there's a beer at the bottom. Happy days. So as I'm going through the tunnel at the top, I've started descending on my bike. I've done a left-hand bend coming into a right hairpin. I've gone to pull my brakes, pulled them a bit more to slow into a hairpin and my front tire blew on my bike. Lost control. On a hand bike, both your brakes were on your front wheel. So there was no way I could stop this bike. And as I'm going 30 miles an hour down the hill, a lorry starts coming around the corner um and i can honestly say it's the first time in my in my life i've I've gone i'm dead this is it index and i was thanking anyone for the life i'd had and i just saw the the uh the actual of the lorry turning and thought that's it i'm dead i'm going into that uh and like i said i got tight and i accepted my landing uh and for some i missed the front wheels and the front of my bike hit the side skirts under a lorry and they then pushed me into the back wheel of the of the lorry uh, my my left leg took the whole impact. Um, I went from thinking I was dead to the next thing looking up at the sky, lying in the middle of a road, still connected to a bike with my prosthetic arms clipped in, um, going, "Wow, I'm awake, I'm alive. How am I still alive?" And I remember doing like going through your body checks. Right, my neck's all right. Wow, I've not broke my arm. I've not broke this arm. I picked my right leg up. That was fine. I went to pick my left leg up, and nothing happened. So I knew I'd broken something. I just picked it up. And there was blood squirting out the end. And yeah, I knew I was in trouble again. Um, but what was different this time from Afghanistan was in Afghanistan, you've got trained medics with you. Now I'm on top of a mountain with a friend who literally was amazing. He's ex-military, took his jersey off, tied it around my leg, pulled it as tight as he could. Uh, the locals were on the phone to the ambulances. And yeah, I mean, again, like when I got blown up, the first 20 minutes didn't hurt. I was sort of not laughing and joking, but... It, I was okay, but the next 20 minutes waiting for the ambulance to come up, it was the worst pain I've ever felt in my life. And I could feel myself drifting in and out of consciousness, thinking I really don't want to die on the side of this mountain. Um, I was in absolute agony. A British doctor cycled past, stopped and went, do you need some help, basically? <laughs> and he, he gave me an ibuprof- ibuprofen tablet. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's going to work. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, cheers for that. And a little sip of water. And I remember hearing... In, in the desert, you could hear the Chinook and you knew it was inbound. You knew it was going to land and you were getting out. 
I heard this ambulance about 15 minutes before it came up the mountain because you're at the top, it's at the bottom, and you could just hear it winding its way up. And yeah, it, it, it was just not good. Um, my wife was already at the bottom. I know she was really concerned about me. Um, she obviously saw the ambulance going up the mountain. And hand bikes, when you go up a hill, are slower than an upright bike. But going down a hill, a hand bike will always beat an upright down a hill. Um, and usually she beat me going up the hill and I'd catch her going down and say a smart comment as I ride past her most of the time. But um, yeah, she was at the bottom with our friends and she was worried. Um, eventually got me to hospital. I'd, I'd snapped the top of my femur. You've got your neck and a neck of femur and that had snapped completely. I lost six inches of bone out the end of my left, left stump. And yeah, I mean, the, the, the surgeons there were amazing. Looked after me, took off what I didn't need, closed my leg fixed my hip two days later uh, and yeah it was like yeah you can go home three or four days after the crash I was like nice one happy days but it took a week to get me home after that and by that point sepsis had set into my leg um, I pretty much got back to England uh, got back to the UK 13 days after it happened and my surgeon got me into Salisbury Hospital straight away uh, Miss Cricket Salisbury Hospital and I can honestly say if it wouldn't be for her I wouldn't be here anymore I pretty much died on the operating table on the Sunday morning through sepsis and blood poisoning um, for her to sort of save my life and I spent 10 weeks in hospital and I'm still trying to recover from that now I, I had a surgeon that I knew who'd worked on me before and she is amazing I, I, I she's very she scares me as well it's it's one of them you She's a very elegant lady um, and you go into the room, if you've done something wrong, it would be, Josh, I'm not angry. I'm just very disappointed. It's like, oh, I've done something wrong. I'm in so much trouble. But um, while, I ha while I was under her in hospital for 10 weeks, I knew I was going to be fine. She would come and visit you every day and make sure you were all right. Um, but it was when I left, that's when I wished I went to Headley Court because I just went home. And I just sat on the sofa and I was like, well, when I got injured, I went from the hospital to Headley Court. Now, what do I do? So I, I sort of remembered what I'd done at Headley Court the, the previous time uh, and started putting that into practice. But I was so, this, the, the crash was a lot worse than getting blown up just because of the way my body reacted and um, being stuck in Spain for a while and then spending so long in the UK, I'd gone from, again, being a fit lad to this, like, I'd lost loads of weight. I'll tell you what, crashing your bike and being in hospital for 10 weeks, if you ever want to go on a diet, I'd recommend it. Um, no, I wouldn't recommend that whatsoever. Um, but no, I, I I just had to, again, I accepted that there was nothing to do. The crash had happened. What do I do? Do I sit on my sofa, eat dominoes and get fat? Or do I start going through what I, what I was taught at Headley Court, doing the, the basic physio stretching and mobility sessions, and then eventually build up to trying to learn how to walk again? Sabrina, is there equivalent of a Headley Court for the fire service? We have a firefighters charity that okay. they've got a number of places across the UK where they can offer services to firefighters and to their dependents. And they're an amazing charity. Okay. And they've done a huge amount of rehabilitation work, staff who've been injured. Um, but also they do some brilliant work supporting people who, uh, who are suffering with their mental health as well. Okay. Um, and they're an incredible charity. They do some brilliant stuff. Um, but they're also very accessible, which is so important. You've both gone on to achieve some absolutely, you know, amazing and phenomenal things. Um, you know, 
do you think you would have achieved these if it weren't for your accident, Josh, your teenage years, Sabrina? Um, I'll ask oh, that one. I'll go for Josh first. Seeing as you oh, I was going to let Sabrina go, go first. Ladies oh. first. Oh. All, right, ladies, let's, all right, let's switch it up. Let's go ladies oh, first. Let's go gents. for Sabrina. Um, probably not, actually, because I think the experiences that you have and the way that you respond to them can really influence and shape you as a person and how you then go on to respond to different things in the future. And I think that the experiences that I had taught me a few things that I think shaped the way that I view things now. Mm. Firstly, I think having that experience, whatever I come across now, I kind of think, well, it's not as bad as, as what it was back then. So it's taught me to be grateful for a lot, actually. Um, so I, I certainly think from that perspective, it built my resilience it might not be the way that you would choose to have your resilience tested or built but it certainly you know it certainly was something that did um but it also it also makes me think a huge amount about the people that you come across and the way that so many people are just written off um some of the people who showed me the most kindness and the most compassion were other people who were also experiencing homelessness and these were people that you'd see your everyday Joe crossing the road to try to avoid because they'd jumped to a conclusion because of how someone looks or how someone presents. Um, the fire service, when I first applied there, they took what didn't look like a brilliant prospect on paper and they saw past that and took me on the strength of who they believed I could be. And that's something that's really important to me, whether it's in a leadership role, whether it's somebody that I come across in the street, it's not to take, it's not to make a snap judgment based on how someone is presenting or or what you see in front of you, but to really see the potential and, and see who's there. And we talk about unconscious bias a huge amount, don't we? And we often talk about it in respect of protected characteristics and with very, very good reason. But I think what we probably don't talk about enough is how people make a snap judgment about you based on your socioeconomic status or your accent or your background, where they think that you are in society. And I think that the more we can open up that discussion, the more we can open up discussions around social mobility and help people to be able to change their circumstances and to be able to realise their full potential. So I think that Although, yeah, it was a horrible experience, and I mean horrible, actually, I, I don't think that I would have taken the challenges that I experienced subsequently um, and, and had such resilience if it, if it wasn't for that. So um, if you asked me, would I change that experience? I'd probably say no. It, it's probably taken me 20 years to get to the point where I can admit that. Um, but if you ask me now, I'd say no. Josh, how about you? Um, I often get asked, do I ever regret joining the army after losing both my legs and my arm, obviously? And my answer is always no, um, because the army taught me to... I didn't. I wasn't going anywhere in life, and the army sort of, a bit like Sabrina, took me in and taught me social skills, uh, discipline, and gave me a career, and I loved my job. Um Yes, it ended up being blown up, but I don't regret the choice I had. If I say I was 24 years old and that's where I thought my life was, since being blown up, I'm up, I'm up here now, um, because obviously being put in a situation like this, you either feel sorry for yourself or you accept what's happened and moved on. And I, I feel like I have moved on. If I if I look back now, what I've managed to achieve, not just me, but all the vast majority of injured guys, yourself included, you have achieved over the last 10, 15 years. I wouldn't have cycled across America. I would probably wouldn't have gone diving with sharks. I wouldn't have 
I don't know. I've done I've done so much stuff. You can't. I wouldn't have competed for my country at the Invictus Games. None of this would have been possible if I hadn't have been blown up. Mm. So I'm a I'm a firm believer in everything happens for a reason, and it's how you react from that which defines the person you are. Um, so yeah, I mean, I no, I don't regret anything, and I w- But saying that, I think being in the military um, gives you that you have to adapt and overcome. You are taught to overcome challenges and having that installed in me before I was injured has definitely helped me in the future. Okay. Thank you. So we're just coming to our last couple of questions. Um, So we're nearly there. Um, Sabrina, I know that you're a year on now from telling your story and the Making Generation R programme, which is um behind the resilient sessions podcast we've um it's all about storytelling and people like josh and Stu have sort of told their stories to sort of over a hundred thousand people now so we sort of believe in the power of storytelling but what impact has it had on you telling your story it's been enormous it's been enormous do you know when i first started to think about this i was kind of thinking no i must be mad why why would i do that and as Particularly as a fire service leader, the other kind of fire service leaders that are around you are these figures that are completely infallible. You think that they go to sleep in their chainmail, right? You can't imagine any chink in these people. And I thought, well, I'm already different enough, but now I'm going to stand up in front of people and admit a vulnerability, talk to people about failures that I've experienced. And I'm not going to stand up in front of people and go, yeah, here's loads of success. Woohoo. I'm going to stand up in front of people and go, I was homeless. I used to eat out of bins and people looked down down their noses on me. And I found it very difficult to, to, to deal with that. That was really frightening. And in my head, I did that thing where you kind of completely catastrophize and you think, yeah, this is, this is going to be awful. Everyone's going to judge. They're going to look at me the same way that they used to. They're going to find out I'm secretly an imposter and that actually I'm no different to that scruffy kid that was sat on the side of the street wearing the same clothes for three weeks. That's, that's what they're going to see. Um, and actually, the reality was so different. The reality was the people who knew me went, wow, I didn't know that about you. Fair play. And then they went on with their day. <laughs> there was no big drama. There was no big deal. But the places where it really made a difference was those young people who were in the same place that I once was. You know, it was those young people who look up and they see somebody who's doing OK now, who's in a job that they might want to do one day but might not have thought they'd be able to going okay so there is a future for kids like me it doesn't matter if you come from a background where you're poor it doesn't matter if you come from a background where you've been in and out of care it doesn't matter there are other things that you can do it doesn't have to hold you back in life so I think that doing that has been really powerful and sometimes I have the odd day where I kind of think because it is exhausting when you talk about it it's hard because you relive all of the emotions that you did I don't know if you find that Josh when you retell your story but it can be really difficult and you still kind of get that feeling in the pit of your stomach when you're you're relaying it because it's those emotions that you felt at the time and and occasionally I do think oh God, what have I done? Why have I done this? But then I've, I've got like a folder on my phone where I kind of save messages that I've had from people. And I've had other firefighters get in touch and say, fair play, I was homeless when I was a teenager. I haven't been able to tell anyone. And now you have. I don't feel so embarrassed about it. So thank you. I had a, I've got messages from police officers, people in public services who've been in the same space. But what I think the most meaningful one, I was giving... um 
was giving a talk at a fire service conference and a woman in the audience stood up at the end and said, thank you so much for sharing your story. I was in care and I experienced homelessness when I was a teenager. And this is me telling everyone for the first time. And I don't think I could have done that unless you'd have said that. And now I feel like a weight has been lifted off my shoulders. And I tried really hard to pretend that it was just something in my eye, but I was crying. Oh, I know, I feel emotional now with you just telling me that's amazing. Unbelievable. So, Mm. yeah, I think you always have those moments where it's hard, but you just got to look at the positive things that have come out uh, come out from it. And Josh, I don't know if you found that same experience with sharing your story. Um, I, I, yes, massively. Um, being it's amazing when you're stood in front of a class of 20, 30, 250 people in one school, and you're stood there in a set of prosthetic legs, and they're looking at you like you are an alien, but they're listening to every word you're saying because they are yeah. so intrigued and so yeah. grateful for you doing it. Um, but on your story, Sabrina, um, I just feel like it it's you not allowing yourself to be defined by what's happened to you. Um, mm. There's a lot of other guys, and I've stolen mm. this off someone else, where it's, for, for military guys, especially injured guys, it's not letting your injury define who you are. You're, you're mm. obviously, you don't want to be pigeonholed into this injured veteran sort of tray. You want to be, this is Josh. He was injured, but look at him now. He's getting on with life. This is Scott. He was injured. Look at him now. He's winning Paralympic mm. medals. Um and by going back onto the stories, it's I it's it's one of the best things I've done since being injured is being stood in front of people and basically showing them that even though you could have a life changing event happen to you twice, you can still overcome that and get on with life um, and not let what's happened to you define you. That's the way I feel about it. Yeah. Amazing. I feel like I should sort of um, give you a round of applause, you both. But I mean, actually, final question. Um, what would you tell your 16-year-old self? Who would like to go first? <laughs> Sabrina Lay- is laughing. Definitely ladies <laughs> first. <laughs> I think there are a range of things I can okay, tell Okay, let's keep it clean. <laughs> I think the, the the one that I would definitely tell my 16-year-old self is if your dog doesn't like them, he's probably right. Oh, that's all right then. <laughs> Good advice. Yeah. Like that. Um, mine would be stay away from alcohol and fast women. <laughs> no, um, no, do you know what? I don't regret anything from when I was younger, but I, I'd probably... Um, I'd probably say to myself, believe in yourself a bit more. Um, don't worry about what other people think because they might not be your friends in a couple of weeks. You never know if that makes sense. Don't don't worry about what people think about you. Worry, Just be the best person you can be. Amazing. Well, all that I can say is just a massive, massive thank you to you both. Um, that was just so wonderful to be able to sit here and just listen to you chatting. Yeah, definitely. Thank you very much, both of you. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having Thank us. Thank you for your time. I enjoyed that. It was good. Thank you. Coming up next week, we have a special bonus episode where we take a look through our favourite moments from the series and Stuart and I have the roles reversed as our producer interviews us. Don't forget, we also have our final remastered episode from Series 1 on Thursday. This week, we hear from Carol Vorderman and veteran Sai Harmer, whose idea kicked off this entire podcast. Thank you to my co-host Stuart Harris and everyone in our production team. This podcast was generously funded by Blesma, the Limbless Veterans Charity, delivered by The Drive Project, 
supported by Facebook and presented by me, Alice Driver, creator of the Making Generation R campaign. Huge thanks go to Sai Harmer, whose idea lit the torch paper of this podcast, and to you for listening. If you've been affected by any of the issues discussed, then please take a look at our webpage or show notes, where you'll be able to find more information on support services. Should you like to listen to any of the veterans' incredible stories, then they are available as part of this podcast series on the Making Generation R website. The Resilient Sessions grew out of the Making Generation R campaign, a project that trains injured veterans from Blesna to tell their stories, so far to over 100,000 people, from the young and vulnerable to frontline services and first responders across the UK. To find out more about Making Generation R and to book a free talk or workshop if you're a school, just Google Making Generation R. If you've enjoyed listening today, then please do subscribe. Give us a five-star review and share it with your family and friends. You never know who it might help.